You're listening to the Hazard Ground Podcast with service members from across the military sharing their stories of combat and survival. And now, here's your host, Mark Zeno. Welcome into the Hazard Ground Podcast. As always, we appreciate you joining us each and every week. This week's guest, a former Green Beret who served in Vietnam and had a very covert mission in that Vietnam War. We'll get to that coming up here in just a moment. Continue to remind you about all of our normal announcements. Follow us on other social media sites, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Hazard Ground at Hazard Ground Podcast. As well, make sure you subscribe to the YouTube channel. Give a thumbs up and a like to all the content there. We appreciate it. Spread the word, folks. Um, we are still continuing to grow. Uh, I would love for us to grow bigger and faster. We need some more downloads and everything else to help do that. So share this podcast with as many people as you can. Certainly appreciate it. But if anybody's got a long drive or anywhere to go or, you know, likes to kill some time on the treadmill at the gym, this is the perfect podcast to listen to. Uh, and we appreciate you guys helping us out as well. Continues to leave us Apple reviews. Uh, that helps us grow the show as well. Give us a five-star rating. Tell us why you love the show. Certainly appreciate all the support there. We'll try to get some of those up on social media as well. Our website, hazardground.com. You can contact us there. If you have any questions, please let me know or guest suggestions. Just go to the contact us page on hazardground.com. And as well, don't forget about our promotion with Amazon. You go to hazardground.com you click on the Amazon button at the bottom of the homepage uh, and you guys will be redirected to Amazon. You will get, uh, you'll be able to do all of your normal Amazon shopping right there. Uh, we'll get a percentage of what you guys spend and then we'll donate a percentage of that back to some of the charities and organizations you've heard featured here on the show. So it's a big way to help out veterans charities just by doing Amazon shopping, but go to hazardground.com first. Same on your smartphone, redirects you to the app, really easy, convenient, and user-friendly. All right, this week's guest is a former Army Green Beret, retired Lieutenant Colonel, who spent 28 years in the Army between active duty and reserves. He has multiple deployments to Southeast Asia, including a two-year stint in Vietnam, as well into Thailand, and worked a secret covert mission in Laos, with the Lao Army, training and advising them in foreign internal defense. Here to discuss his story is James Burton joining us here on the Hazard Ground Podcast. James, welcome. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you, Mark. Uh, you want me to start from the beginning? <laughs> it's Bruton. I didn't say Burton. I say Burton Bruton, James Bruton. That's a, that's a common era. Uh, you know, it's just uh, I transpose the letters and I get ahead of myself, but James Bruton is here. With it's not us. a hanging offense. That, I'm glad you're not offended. It's always bad to, to offend the guests in the first you know, three minutes of the show, so we try not to. But we always do like to start at the beginning, and, and tell us how and why you got in the Army. Well, I arrived uh, on this planet in 1944. I was born in an Army hospital at Fort J. Governor's Island, New York. My father was in the Army Air Corps at the time, and only spent two years in New York before my folks returned to North Carolina, which is their home. My father was in textiles, so uh, I grew up in a a denim mill town that made blue jeans, made, or it made the denim for the blue jeans, it didn't make the jeans themselves. And uh, small town, normal things that go in a small town, which is not a whole lot. Um, I developed a very strong Wanderlust. Uh, I think I got a stamp album and saw that there were other countries in the world that I'm interested in them, but my South, much of the South has a military culture. Kids play you know, collect uh, used weapons and uh, you know, play, sometimes they play cowboy and Indians, but it used to be they play in a play, play army. And so I grew up in that culture. And, every, and, and when, when, when folks graduated from high school, they naturally went into the army or Navy or Air Force or something, just part of life. I do have 
draft resistance was, was just was, was just inconceivable. So in any case, uh, that that was that was the environment I was in. Uh, I attended a university named after two generals, Washington and Lee University. That happened to be coincidental, but it had that an ROTC program, which I I kind of got into, and. Uh, as uh, graduation approached, I had to think about what am I going to do when I grow up? So uh, I kind of liked uh, what was going on in the Army, my yeah, ROTC, such as it was. And though I'd uh, challenged myself, I selected as my branch infantry and uh, went from graduation to Fort Benning, to junk school, to the 82nd. Spent a, roughly a year in the 82nd, and I was selected to go to an advisory course called MATA. That stands for Military Assistance Training Advisor. And I think it was about a six-week course that included Vietnamese language. And I learned some good things there. Uh, there, there are things I could criticize about it, but I, I, think, I think overall it, it, was, it, was, it was a good concept. And after the MATA course, I was sent to another two, two months, I think, of Vietnamese training at uh, a defense language school extension location at Fort Bliss, Texas. And uh, I really value, I didn't realize at the time, but I really valued the Vietnamese because I could, I was in situations where my counterparts did not speak English. And I got my Vietnamese to a passable level where they could understand me. And I could communicate with ordinary people on simple subjects. So I, I, I didn't feel alienated from the population the way a lot of GIs did. Um, anyway, assignment in Vietnam. Uh, I was assigned to the 18th Arvin Infantry Division. Mm -hmm. It was not considered the best division in the lineup, though I happened to be of a very good battalion. Mm -hmm. um, and I was very fortunate because we were not overly active when I was there. I mean, we we, we had operations and and going out on so-called search and destroy missions and things like that, uh, and larger operations that's part of a larger effort but i did not uh it, 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 it wasn't i didn't live in a state of fear but it gave me time let me ask you things i'm sorry let me ask you real quick so i mean you signed up at a time when you know the vietnam war was was beginning to kick off obviously i mean you had no concerns and fear about going to combat no i i was, I was young and stupid and i underlined the word stupid i wanted to go to combat see you know see what it's like and I get quite frank to see, see if I can handle it. Well, you know, look, I, I've spoken to a lot of Vietnam veterans who have said, you know, look, I, I would have rather have enlisted or signed up because I felt like I had some measure of control as compared to the draft, right? Yes. Like they, they had some measure of, I'd like to pick this unit. I'd like to do this. I'd like, you know, because if you were drafted, you would just, you know, at the mercy of whatever the army needed at that time. Uh, and it was a crapshoot. So I certainly understand that. Um, I, I'm curious before you end up getting to Vietnam, like where does the Green Beret thing fit in? Or am I getting too far ahead of myself? Uh, a little too far. I, I, I yeah. eventually wanted to join SF, but first I felt I needed to. Do you go to, your, do you go to Vietnam before you end up becoming a Green Beret? Uh, yes, yes, okay. yes. So then let's, let's stay there first, just so chronologically everybody could can, everybody can stay with you. So uh, how long were you in before you ended up deploying to Vietnam? I know you're saying you were with the 18th Arvin Division. Uh, about, about a year. Okay, so it was that quick? Yes, uh huh. Okay. It, it was fast back in those days, and it, it was not. It was not to the advantage of many of the officers who were sent because to learn one's job thoroughly takes time, and 
there's so much going on, and particularly you know, like the 82nd, that uh, you may miss some things along the way. Uh, it's just moving so fast, doing so many things at once, one mission after the other, that uh, sometimes training gets neglected. Sure, that that's the tactical proficiency in the field and knowing knowing how to uh, make yeah, use the weapons properly, things of that nature. Right. Okay. So um, when you are, are told you're going to Vietnam, what do they tell you? Like, what what, what did you hear? Did you have any idea what your mission was going to be? What's the, kind of the lead up to it? Yes. Orders just came down and said to MACV, which okay. is the all-encompassing organization there. And that usually meant one would become an advisor with a Vietnamese unit. And the fact that I went to language school, or to come out of course in language school, meant I would be an advisor. And I was okay with that. Okay. Um, did you know where you were going in Vietnam? No, I had no idea. <laughs> did that bother you? No. Oh. What, 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 they told me I was going to Baghdad, never been to Iraq before. Okay. I, I could look on a map where it is. I get yeah. nothing about it. You know, if they told me I was going to Baghdad and landed me in Mosul, I wouldn't have known the difference. Right. Like right. It, it was, I, I suppose that's fair. Um, when you get on ground and you get there initially, uh, d- d- is it different than what you expected? Well, um, well, I was I was aware I was in a different culture, mm-hmm. different society, but I accepted that. I, 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 didn't have, I don't think I had any resistance to being there. And um, again, I think the language provided a little bit of a buffer, just to be able to talk to a taxi driver or um, get a simple thing from a store. And I think that helped. So I felt I at least could connect with the people in some way, some small way. All right. So once you get there and you're on ground, how quickly do you start getting involved in this advisor mission that you're doing? Uh, right away. I was, well, we went through an orientation course uh, in Saigon and I had orders for 18th division. Um, I was flown to a city called Swan Lock which is uh, kind of north, uh, north, 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 north by northeast of Saigon. And uh, we had a, just a brief orientation there at Swanlock. Uh, and then I was assigned to, a, a, I was an assistant advisor to a battalion, infantry battalion. And uh, I was all ears and I, I just, I was just I was there I was I was in a learning mode. Uh, what comes next? What do we do now? And so forth. And uh, that that was the state of mind I was in. I wasn't I wasn't frightened or anything like that. Just uh, waiting for the next event to occur. Okay, what's it like day to day for you? Oh. Uh, well, we had very primitive hooches in the compound. And part of our uh, effort was um, uh, scrounging food, so we had fresh food for uh, from time to time. We also had our own supply of sea rations if we if we needed them. And we were focused on overseeing whatever the next 
mission was that came our way. Oftentimes, it's just a walk through, walk somewhere in the area. Uh, you name anything you want to. We call it search and destroy because we weren't meeting anyone we wanted to destroy. But uh, just, 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 just uh, saturation patrolling, uh, reconnaissance and force, whatever you want to call it. But just going out and seeing what's there and seeing what's going on. Is there any sense for you that you're like in danger? Um, that you know that combat's going to break out, or you're almost like deluded by the fact that you're nowhere near it. More the latter. Okay. Did you think like, hey, uh, maybe this isn't so bad being here, kind of deal? Where you're almost like you know falsely led to believe that. I knew that uh, war is about long periods of uh, boredom, uh, punctuated by chaos. Yeah. So I knew the chaos hadn't come yet. When does the chaos come? Probably the most chaotic experience. Well, I wouldn't call it chaotic because we knew what we were, we were doing. Uh, uh, there was an opening in another battalion. I was transferred to that, I guess, around uh, December of 67. Um, it was down in a uh, more in a coastal area. And we were about a month from the town offensive. Uh, it was a more interesting assignment because the battalion was involved in providing security for a pacification mission in that province, that, in that, 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 that district. Uh, I lived in a district uh, compound, so there were not just the, the, my major and not just uh, the, uh, the sergeant, but uh, we had uh, the district advisors as well. And I learned, started to learn more about uh, the pacification mission. Uh, we had a USAID representative there who was overseeing some of the some of the programs, um, and there were uh, there was attention paid to the uh, popular forces. You had local militia, the ones controlled by the district chief were the popular forces, and then the ones that were controlled by the by the province chief were the regional forces. There were companies and uh, 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 they were supposedly not as good, weren't, weren't seen as, as, as good as Army, but they weren't supposed to be. They were local troops who fought locally. How, I mean, when do you actually see your, or get your first taste of combat in Vietnam? Uh, we came under fire several times when we were out wandering around uh, on just on a regular uh, look around type mission. And I think I got my uh, I got fired at my first month in country, so that gave, that qualified me for the CIB. Okay. You don't think about it unless you don't have it. That's true. Um, all right. So you're doing this advisor mission here, um, and you end up being there for two years. Mm-hmm. Uh, was there a point where you're like, "Hey, how come I'm still here? Why haven't I gone home yet?" No. Why? I, I, well, the problem of going home then is that the stateside assignments were not totally pleasant. Uh, units were under strength because they were being levied uh, right. for troops to send to Vietnam. Uh, they were short of officers and NCOs in many cases. There was a sometimes there were discipline problems, race problems, and drug problems. And but they were under pressure to perform as if they were uh, at full strength and were fully capable of doing everything they were supposed to do. So it was just kind of, kind of a lot of pressure getting, rec- 
you're getting ready for the next big event, the next uh, uh, IG inspection, the next uh, uh, field exercise, uh, whatever that they could be evaluated on. And so it was a lot of pressure, but uh, not as much uh, uh, capability as, as one would hope. At any point in time during these first two years in Vietnam, did you ever think that you might not come home? Yes, but it wasn't. A, I, I, I don't think I felt fear about it. Why? Now, sometimes something can just scare the bejesus out of you and you realize, hey, a guy can get killed in this war. But uh, I, uh, I, I didn't walk around with that, with that, with that fear. But I, I, was, I was cautious. And uh, I mean, I got transferred to a unit and closer to the coastline, uh, which was a, was a good, had a good, good, good battalion command. It was a good unit. And when Tet came along, the officer who had replaced me in the previous battalion uh, got killed during Tet. He's doing the right thing. He was. Uh, laying down a base of fire so that uh, his sergeant who gotten wounded could could could, could get out, but uh, uh, yeah, I, I, that that brought the war home closer to closer to home to me. Right. Um, does that unnerve you a little bit? No, no. It's just something that happened. Okay. Um, when you actually get back from Vietnam, did you anticipate that? You'd be done with deploying. Did you anticipate that that was like kind of the end of it? I felt that this goes back to something you said, you said earlier. I felt I had control over things. Uh, I was I was just an advisor for 18 months. And then in my last six months in, in Vietnam, I was in the 173rd Airborne Brigade. My intent in going there was to uh, get a company because I need, needed company command time. And the, they had more captains than they knew what to do with. So uh, I wound up as a battalion Civil military, military affairs officer, and I kind of liked that because I, again, I got to use my language, and I felt it was important, and I was concerned with the the way the GI sometimes would alienate people, maybe unintentionally, but um, I felt that wherever your units went, sometimes the VETCON recruiting sergeant I was having to work overtime to sign up uh, sign up new men because we we just we just alienated the people unnecessarily. And just sometimes it's misbehavior and thoughtlessness and so forth. And it was, uh, it was, uh, it was unnecessary, but it was, it's a command problem because the commanders don't know how to deal with it or don't, or don't think about dealing with it. Uh, as far as, um, your next assignment goes, and I, I, cause I, I'm fast forwarding a little bit because I want to get to your time in, in Laos, but uh, we talked earlier about, um, you know, you becoming a Green Beret. When does that happen? Well, it happened in a way that I did not like. They had two, you had two ways of getting into special forces. You right. go through the, go through the Q course, go through school. Right. And uh, there were things I wanted to learn. I wanted to experience. I wanted to do. And for some reason, don't ask me why I still don't understand it. Uh, Branch would not send me to, 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 to the Q course. Okay. Uh, and you get assigned to an SF unit. And you function there for a while, then you believe, believe this, this, this is the, this is the strange part. You take a correspondence course, believe it or not. And then if you, pat, if you pass that, and if you were the unit, you have to be the unit, then being in combat with that unit helps. But there are several criteria that you have to meet, uh, that can get you special forces qualified. You get your SF tab. And I, I eventually uh, met those criteria. 
was that a big was that a big moment for you? Like, I mean, because I mean, when we think of it now, when we think of you know Green Berets and everything, they, they've had such a long history. You know, the idea of Green Berets was relatively young by the time Vietnam rolls around, 10, 15 years old. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, was it a big deal for you, for other people that you ended up getting a, a tab? It, it was important for me to have met the, the, met, met the standards as such as they were. So I much rather would have preferred the going through the Q course at Bragg. Gotcha. Did, so, you ever, did you ever end up getting a chance to go or no? No, no. What, the, the, I guess they didn't want to spend the money, but... Uh, a friend and I in Thailand started counting the new officers who were coming in uh, to the unit. Only about only half of us went through the Q course. The other half went my way. We we still couldn't figure out why why that why it was done that way. And then it was done that way even back in the early '60s that I know of. And I don't know why. Wow, anyway, it's just one of the mysteries of life. <laughs> um, okay, so. You had mentioned that um, you commanded in Korea. Uh, and again, this was obviously during the time of the Vietnam War. So it's still a tense area over there. Um, and then you get assigned to um, an SF company in Thailand, right? But this was this, this was just a little bit later, but I went to the advanced course at Fort Benning. Okay. And what, what's important about that is um, I think I think our, our, our class size is about 160. And we had a number of allied officers in attendance. Uh, four of those were from Laos, and uh, uh, I think seven were from Vietnam. The, uh, I became friends with, one of the, with a couple of the Lao officers, and also I sponsored the Vietnamese major who happened to be from the Airborne Division. And uh, I, we could do a whole program on him. But uh, when I was assigned to Thailand, I was just there, I don't know, about five months when the Lao assignment came up. And when I was in Laos on the training mission with the with the regular Lao army, I uh, had occasion to meet with uh, my classmate, Cal. When he got to Laos from, when he, when he, from, from Fort Benning, he got promoted to the rank of major. And then as a major, he, he, was, he was plucked out of the regular army to work with the special guerrilla units. He was assistant group, mo- group mobile GM commander, and because uh, he was good, and I think he was assistant commander. They got got to the rank of commander. What the CIA did when when someone was commander of a group mobile, he, he received the full rank of colonel. So Cal went from captain to colonel in a very short period of time, but he, he distinguished himself in, in that role. Here, uh, I'll, I'll, I'll tell you how, how we got to got to me. We were assigned, okay, the two, two A-teams were assigned to uh, uh, three different locations in Laos. Uh, the other A-team went to a training center that was working with the 2nd Strike Division at a place called Sano, which is in, kind of in central Vietnam, no, no, central Laos, outside of Savannah Cat. And uh, this division was intended to be kind of a, a, a quick reaction force for the company, country. Um, my team was split. I had six men, and the other six went went far north to a training site, Pukau Kwai, in the mountains. They wound up training, uh, 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 working with troops who were from uh, some of the hill tribes. You have various hill tribe groups in Laos. Uh, the lowland Lao uh, dominate the political and the economic 
uh, a part of the country. But the, the hill tribesmen uh, live their traditional lives. And the sometimes relations between the different tribes and between the tribes and the lowland Lao is not completely amicable. So uh, they have to, part of, a, part of a challenge for an advisor is to make sure the different groups in the units are working together uh, peaceably, peaceably. No, I, you asked me a question. I didn't. I, I wandered off of that. Uh, <laughs> no, it's okay. I mean, look. So the the, and I, I want to preface the, the the whole part of the story, um, uh, or your story, and why I thought it was important to to share it. You know, what you're doing in Laos um, is something that that you know the Green Berets talk about as foreign internal defense (FID), uh, and it's something that I personally did when I was deployed with Green Berets in 05 to 06. Uh, and it's something that is currently going on right now in Ukraine uh, as, you know, we sort of fight this proxy war. Uh, yes. And, and you know, Vietnam, it's obviously a little bit different, as was Iraq, because we're actually in combat. But then we have put aside these whole group of people who are dedicated to training indigenous forces. Mm-hmm. Uh, in this case, the Lao army, in my case, the Iraqi army and in Ukraine, it's the Ukrainians um, to sort of fight and survive on their own. Yes. So it's almost a way that, we're, you, that we help make them a force multiplier, right? Mm. Uh, and what's what's interesting to note about you doing this is this, this was really kind of like in Vietnam was the first real iteration of FID, of foreign internal defense that Green Berets ever really conducted. Um, it, it, since then, it's gone on all over the world. We do yes. it everywhere. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, there, there are Green Berets deployed to countries in, you haven't even thought of that are working with their military on a routine basis to help their military or help their government or help their whatever get up to speed. Um, and I, I find this fascinating because it's one of those things where, you know, the, it's twofold. You have to have the, the knowledge set of what you're training, but you also have to have that unique skill to get people who don't know you, who don't trust you, who, who really know nothing about you to develop all those things in a short amount of time that they're going to believe what you're telling them is going to save their life help them win a battle, help them get their country back and a whole bunch of other things. Yes. And that's another layer that's not there. I mean, you know, it's easy for uh, an American sergeant to teach an American private how to operate a 50 caliber machine gun and they listen unequivocally and don't ask any questions. Right. It's not always the case when you're dealing with somebody from a foreign country, especially when you could be considered as an invader in certain cases like we were in Iraq. So, I mean, you know, um, that whole dynamic, I, I think, is super important to understand. So when you first start working on the ground in Laos, like I, I know you have a, a background in Vietnamese and speaking Vietnamese, but how much different is the language you're dealing with? Oh, uh, Vietnamese and Lao are different languages, but right. the only similarity is that they're both tonal languages. And if you pronounce the word the wrong tone, you, you, you're, you're, you're uttering a different word. Okay. So you have to, you know, we Americans, especially me, are terrible remembering tones. So it, it comes I think out that, applies, that applies most to the F word in America. If you say yeah. it loud, yeah. it means one thing. If you whisper it, it means another. Yeah, right. right. Look at this piping guy. Uh, anyway, so, um, but I, I mean, that said, how do you overcome that at the outset? I mean, are, you have interpreters. Does it just take you time to learn it? Like, how, what's the lay of the land in that in that sense? We. 
um, just took our time getting to know the, the individuals. And they were actually very uh, straightforward forward with us. Many had been to American schools, uh, uh, either language schools or uh, been trained at Fort Benning or uh, there was a program at Fort Knox. So they had been, uh, they, they'd, they'd been exposed to us before and they would come to us and ask questions. Let, let me, let me uh, qualify something about what we were doing. Um, we did not do that much direct training of the Lao. Uh, a, a program had been set up where Lao instructors were specially trained to help uh, improve the quality of their own uh, troops. So we were supposed to monitor them. And so we sat in the classroom sometimes, watched how they did, not, not that we understood a single word they were saying, but uh, uh, sometimes we'd sit down with them after, after the class and go over the program of instruction they were using in a constructive way. Or, you know, how'd, how'd, how'd you, where'd you learn this? How'd, how'd, you, how'd you learn to do that? And so forth. And, and we'd, uh, we'd get around that. We uh, had, um, we did not have actual interpreters uh, in all throughout Laos. There were already advisors who were snuck in under what was called uh, Project 404. The Geneva, we signed the Geneva Agreements in 62 that got military people out of Laos, except for military attaches. Well, we just happened to have a whole lot of military attaches, and they were in, uh, they were scattered throughout the country. And uh, the site where we were assigned had uh, a major who'd been to Lao language school. Uh, he, was, he, was, he was special forces. And uh, uh, he, he worked well with his counterparts, so we we and we we worked through him sometimes uh, uh, to communicate things. But we also many of us spoke some level of Thai. Thai and Lao are similar. They preferred that we speak Lao to them, but if we can't, hey, they can handle Thai because if they're close to the border, they can listen to Thai radio, and so the the language is not that much different for them. Right. Uh, but but we, we weren't teaching that. We're doing that much in the way of teaching classes or. Or doing direct instruction on our own. My job was just to monitor what what their instructors were doing. What was there a part of you that after being in Vietnam and doing that job there and sort of seeing the fight up close, was there a part of you that was sort of disappointed that you're now in Laos where nothing theoretically was going on uh, as far as a combat mission was concerned, no. and you're sort of stuck training these guys? Not not at all. No, not at all. Uh, I, I felt it was a continuation of the same thing to some extent, just just a different 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 culture, different soldiers, but uh, it, it, there were similarities than than differences. When you um, are starting to train them, how quickly are you getting a sense that either they're picking it up or they're not picking it up, or this may work or it's not going to work, kind of deal? Body language, you can tell. And let me say this about the Lao: uh, many of the many of us in Special Forces Thailand who'd worked with training Thai and Lao, find, found that the Lao were more uh, receptive and more attentive students than the Thais were. They seemed to be more appreciative of what they were getting. I mean, it's, it's a subjective judgment, but folks really liked working with the Lao because they seemed, they, they seemed to like what they were getting. They knew that they, they could use it and save their lives. So that they were, they, we, we liked working with them very much. Um. I get you like working with them, but were they competent? Yes, yeah, there, there were, were 
they could learn. They could learn. Let me give you an example, a couple of things that 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 uh, exemplify this. During an FTX, FTX after after our first three month cycle of training, we were supposed to you know wander through an area south of of our uh, camp location, and we weren't we were of course fully armed, but we weren't expecting to make contact with anybody. A path at Lyle element tried to uh, ambush us, and uh, the lead element that is. Well, the battalion commander has always had a man a 57 to Corliss rifle uh, nearby, and he used that to break up an ambush. He used that on several occasions during this FTX. Not only did he, he spring a couple of ambushes, but uh, we uh, captured a couple of pocket Lyle. They looked very, very pathetic. I don't think they were uh, fierce warriors, but uh, we, 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 it, it, but that just, just, just really elevated morale throughout the entire, the entire group. Uh, the, but they, 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 they were glad we were there. They listened to us and they, they knew we, we had the radio. We could talk to, uh, uh, fast movers if, if we got into a really bad situation. So, uh, they were, uh, I, I think they were, they, their sentiment toward us was, was very positive. So when you um, are working with these guys day in and day out, um, you know, do you know when they are ready to do this on their own? Because that was always the challenge, right? Like the, the challenge of, of foreign internal defense is it's, it's like a journey, not necessarily a destination. How yes. do you know when they're done being trained? Just like us, we're never technically done being trained. Right. Even if we're proficient, we go back out and train on it, mm-hmm. um, and, and then we evaluate our own training standards. It, it, was there a sense for for you that okay, they got it, but they're not really battle tested enough to know whether they're actually going to be able to handle it? That depends on their commanders, and if they have a strong commander, I think they we would have a sense that they could they could handle themselves. But if uh, the commander is uh, less, if, if he's substandard, then you realize uh, things may not go the way you would like. And the problem with the Lao army is it, it, it was it was slowly, slowly becoming a little bit more professional because of the training that the U.S. was providing to its officer corps. But it was a traditional society uh, with patronage systems and powerful families that called the shots in, in Vinchan and uh, in the early 60s, the Lao army made some, just made some humongous, costly blunders. And if anyone got relieved over that, I, I wasn't aware of it. I, I don't have all the facts. I'm, I, I shouldn't be making any, any, any sweeping statements, but uh, uh, you can't always assume that a commander is going to be held accountable for his mistakes if, right. he's, if he's from the right family. What was an example of one of the blunders you were talking about? Okay, uh, I'm gonna have to almost read this. Uh, and, and there was a a battle. Do, 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 do. I got my notes posted to the wall. Uh, 19. Do, do, do. Where is it? Okay. That's one that they won. Uh, well, it's good to know they won one. Oh yeah, they 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 won some things. Uh, now they were not. No one ever confused them with being Prussians. But uh, okay, one one battle. Uh, 
Nanta. Where the hell is it? As you're looking for it, uh, right. I, I'll say this much. I mean, and again, this is just personal experience. Um, there's always a, a sense of trepidation when you have to put yourselves alongside of these guys in a combat situation, you know, because they're depending on you, but you're also depending on them to save your life. I, I can't tell you how many times I would run a mission and half the people on the mission would be Iraqi soldiers, would be half uh-huh. American and Iraqis. And while the numbers seem great, you don't really know how good these guys are until it's too late to find out how that yes. works. If the bullets are already flying, you know, and if they're not good at it, guess what? You've now doubled your problem. You're right. Right. Did you find it? <sighs> not yet. Uh, 64. Uh, no, it was a it was in the early 60s. Uh, it, it was a, it was a, it was a route. Uh, should be page three. Page four. Okay. We're gonna get there. It's okay. It's okay, folks. Hang on. But, but the two, the two, the, the two battles that were disasters were one called Namta, okay, and the other was. And these were these were battles that took place in in Laos, Laos in northern Laos, uh, under under Lao commanders. I don't. Special forces may have had a. Okay, we had a team there. Familiar Project White Star, uh, a. Special Forces sent uh, uh, a field training team to Laos in 1959, and it eventually acquired the name uh, White Star, and its its purpose was to conduct training for both the regular army, and they also worked with the irregulars, mainly with the Hmong at that point. Um, And after the 62 uh, peace accords, White Star pulled out. It oh, was really? I'm oh, sorry. Why did they pull out? It was, it was, we had to comply with the with the agreements. No military forces in Laos. Okay. Uh, it, it was, it, Laos was neutralized in theory, and a new government was set up, which included uh, uh, had a, a royalist faction, a neutralist faction, and then a communist faction. But it did not hold together very well, as you can imagine. Right. When in the big picture, when these blunders happen and, and they get into combat and, and it doesn't go well, how much did you sort of blame yourself, for lack of a better term? Fortunately, I wasn't in a situation like that. Much of the much of the blame and finger pointing would occur at a higher level. Because some of these these battles, um, the embassy had a hand, at least had a say in what might happen. And in a couple of them, them trying to find here we go, Namta and Lok Sal uh, were two battles, and they just uh, didn't. Uh, anyway, but the embassy could have said, "We told you so," and uh, I don't know if that doesn't good or not. You, you know, it, 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 it puts the other party in a very defensive position, and I don't know if it accomplishes accomplishes anything constructive. No, I, I, I agree, but I just wonder, as somebody who's doing the training themselves, did you feel a sense of, I don't know, disappointment? Did you feel like, hey, I should have done, could have done more? 
that they had these blunders, they had these failures, um, or was it one of those things where, the, hey, they just weren't ready and you can't predict when the enemy is going to show up at your door? After, okay, after, after 73, 74, when things started falling apart in Laos, I had a feeling of uh, not having succeeded. But I don't know of anything I could have done better or differently to, to have <clears throat> prevented that from happening. Were you able to define success in this mission? Yeah. What I've done is, uh, and this is not my team, my success, it's that of my team, and I wish I could claim that it was, but I listed 11 different actions where the irregulars, the SGUs, had some successful missions. So uh, what's I had that? special guerrilla units. Uh, yeah. The, yeah, the regular Lao Army. And then around 62, the CIA formed the irregulars, the uh, special guerrilla units. And here's, here's something that's very important, very important point. Uh, most people conflate SGU with Hmong. The Hmong were in the SGUs. They were good. They sacrificed a lot. They were persecuted after the war. But the SGUs also included other tribal groups and lowland Lao. And right now when people say SGUs, they, 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 they're thinking Hmong. Well, yeah, give the Hmong the credit they deserve. But also let's not overlook the others who are part of it. So that's why I have a little laundry list here of uh, different actions that took place. Okay, there was a combined operation between uh, regulars and Hmong in July 64. They took a mountain and, uh, and captured a vast amount of weapons and supplies. This was up in the Northern area. Okay, 65, August, uh, regular army and Hmong SGUs seized uh, another mountain Objective, capturing more weapons and foodstuffs, quite a bit. In 66, a Lao intelligence team entered Yainan province in China to conduct a wiretap operation. Now, I don't know what came of that, but they, at least they got, got in and, 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 and accomplished that part of the mission. Uh, the special guerrilla units sometimes organized into little commando raider teams. And one such team led by uh, a Lao sergeant, conducted the largest POW rescue mission of the war. This was in 67. Uh, he, uh, this was close to the Ho Chi Minh Trail. There were some caves, and he uh, got intel that uh, the, the NVA were, no, North Vietnamese, were holding uh, prisoners in those caves. So he went back, reported it, and then he was sent back. He had to walk. It was a two-day walk from where he was inserted. So he and his team got there at four zero four hundred. They took out the guards and they rescued uh, roughly eighty uh, prisoners. Now these were these were locals. These were not uh, the, the Americans had been there, but they had been moved to another to another prison. But uh, 50, 50, 30 fled into the jungle immediately, and fifty were uh, uh, evacuated. Says so sixty-seven. That, that, that was, and the reason they were successful is all the all the team members who were involved in that operation were uh, indeed they were local to that area, so they knew the terrain. In August, September of sixty-nine, <clears throat> General Vung Pao. He was both the leader of the Hmong, and also he was the uh, military region commander. He launched. He was a pretty capable general. He launched an offensive called Redeem Honor, that pretty much cleared the North Vietnamese off of the Plain of Jars. 
Now the area in, in the there's an area in the, in, in the north in military region two, uh, that's Hmong territory for the most part, and it's it's called Plain of Jars because uh, some group who lived there a long time ago have these these jars like water jars out on the uh, scattered around the plains. No one knows if they have religious significance or if they're if they're about burials or or what. But anyway, that's how it got its name. The French called it the Plain de Jar and uh, the nickname for it is P PDJ. Anyway, he, uh, Von Powell cleared it for a short period of time. In August of 69, a road watch team, that was a special uh, group of SDUs who just uh, count the number of trucks or pay attention to what's going down the Ho Chi Minh Trail and report it back. Uh, they found a truck park under canopy uh, right off the Ho Chi Minh Trail. They reported that. They they were given charges. They went back. They blew up everything. And then as they were leaving, the uh, U.S. Air Force uh, inflicted more damage on that truck park. All right. I mean, that's that's a lot. Um, when you when you bring all that together uh, and you see what they were able to do and accomplish mm -hmm. a relatively short amount of time. Right. Yes. How what was your total duration in Laos? I was just there six months. I said seven months. Okay. Seven months. And, seven and months. Much of that training came from the CIA. The CIA had had had, had specialized case officers and and people who know how to train, and and they had their own camp. So they they did some of the, some of the training there. Other training took place in Thailand. Uh, the Lao units have flown to Thailand where they received this training, and it was very uh, it's kind of close hold what went on in the Thai camps. In six or seven months, you're able to get these guys to a point where they are this ready um, to go fight. I, I, I mean, are you surprised at that? Because no, look, I, I, I trained an Iraqi army unit. Like it took me a solid year. Yes, get them to a point where they were able to do anything on their own. Mm -hmm. uh, I remember six months in, I was like. Talking to you know my fellow officer, be like, yeah, this is hopeless. <laughs> There's yeah. no way they're ever going to get this, you know. So I, I hear that, and I just use draw off my own experience, and I go, that seems like a lot. Like they were able to accomplish a lot, and my guys weren't even doing so much straight. My guys got basic combat skills to survive. It wasn't mm -hmm. like I was teaching them how to conduct an ambush. I was just yes. teaching them basic infantry tactics, mm -hmm. you know, how to survive in combat kind of deals. So. The fact they were able to actually conduct missions at that level to me is impressive. Let me give you one more example of what they did. In 71, uh, peace talks began with the uh, North Vietnamese in, in, in Paris. And uh, a team, actually a two-man team, let me back up. If you imagine North Vietnam as best you can without a map, it, it thins out as it's, it's a thin strip of Vietnam between the Gulf of Tonkin and the uh, Lyle border. And there's a city there called Vin. And a special team was sent to southwestern part of Vin, and they tapped a phone line, a multiplex phone line. And the information that they, they, they got, or they did it, the information that was transmitted back to our, our intel folks helped Kissinger design his strategy for negotiating at the Paris peace talks. Wow. 
Now, it took, it took a number of efforts because sometimes they, they put the device on wrong or they put it, didn't put it on the right wire or something like that, but they learned how to climb the telephone pole and, and connect something to something. And uh, it, 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 that, was, that was one of the most impressive things. It was a two-man team. It took a lot of practice, and there are some failures uh, in inserting them, but uh, they, they, they finally got the job done. Were, were the heights of your successes higher than the bottoms of your failures, if that makes sense? I, I don't know how. Uh, that, that'd be hard to uh, – that would be a very subjective judgment. I don't know. I, I, I don't know how you, I, how you evaluate that. That's – I mean, look, it was it was a subjective question. I just kind of yeah. wanted your, your feeling on it. But, you know, I, I certainly understand the answer. Um, you know, when you can – when you see the effect of what they were able to accomplish or something like that when you talked about Kissinger developing a plan based off of a wiretap um, – is there part of you that is like, okay, they can do this without me? No. I, well, maybe without me, Jim Bruton, but well, uh, the, the CIA. I uh, the entire, like, you know, concept of, of American training. Yeah. I, 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 no, that, this, no, this is not something that you don't, they could do on their own. They, they need the equipment and advice of a, of a country like the U.S. Because I doubt that the inventory allow would have, allows would have any type of wiretap device on, you know, for their own use. What were some of the other biggest successes of this whole thing for you? Well, we left thinking that uh, the troops we had worked with, if they had the right leadership, uh, were capable of, of, of holding their own. Uh, that we had a sense of accomplishment. Uh, though there was there was no proof of it at that point right so when you leave and saigon ultimately falls at the end of this thing what what is kind of your reaction and feeling like you, you did all this work and then all of a sudden it ended up in the same spot april 30th is one of the saddest days of my life really the fall of saigon yeah okay. and an interesting thing is uh i mentioned i was an advisor with the 18th Army division that was at one time rated as the second worst division in the entire country. And the, uh, it, it, it had, a, had a good commander. It somehow turned itself around. And 18th Division destroyed two North Vietnamese divisions that were attacking the Swan Lock area. Now, they used the resources at hand. They had some daisy cutters in their inventory. So they dropped a couple of those on uh, NVA uh, North Vietnamese concentrations. And uh, the only reason they quit fighting when they did was that they ran out of ammunition. But they had a very uh, uh, capable general, General Dow, I think. And uh, he, uh, but that's an example of, of, of a bottom of the barrel type unit being pulled up because of leadership. Uh, at some point here, um... When you leave Laos and you get back home, um, what sort of was there anything that you felt was left undone? Ooh. Good question. Well, we were told not to take photos, which we did, mm-hmm. and not to keep records, which we did. But I would like to have seen a more formal. Uh, after action process so right. that 
if anyone did this after us, they would have something to learn from. And that, that was not done. But that's the same problem, problem, problem White Star had. White Star was terrible. They'd, they'd send in a, some teams to do training. They'd go back to Fort Bragg, another group of teams to get done. Then there was no transition. We'll get to that follow-on thing uh, in a minute because I do want to ask you about it. Um, the other part of this whole foreign internal defense thing, and I could speak to this personally, is the relationship you build with those guys over the course of time. Mm-hmm. You live next to them, you sleep next to them, you eat with them, you breathe with them. I mean, you're doing everything side by side every single day um, in the name of fighting and winning a war and keeping yourselves alive. Mm-hmm. Uh, was it hard to leave any of those relationships or any of those people? Well, we, I kind of missed it in a way because it's a mission and it's a challenging mission. You have to use your, 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 all your resources, your, what, what little language skill you have and your people skills and uh, technical and tactical knowledge and ability to solve problems and maintain uh, constructive relationships. So I, I, that, that's a challenge. And I like doing that. I did the same thing later in Bosnia, but that's another story. And uh, I, 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 um, Anyway, uh, yes, I, I kind of missed it. And I look back on, on that time. I look back on Special Forces Thailand with emphasis on the Lao part as being one of the highlights of my life. Not that many, but that's one of the highlights. Don't sell yourself short. But I, and again, I, I feel similar about my time doing the same thing uh, mm-hmm. as far as the mission. You know, for the 24 years I've been in the Army, um, still to this day, I, it's unequivocally the best. 15 months of my life. Yes. Yeah. Accomplished more than I ever thought I was possible. Mm-hmm. It more, uh, had more of an impact than I ever thought was possible. And, you know, that's a direct result of the people that I work with every day. And, you know, those Iraqi people and those Iraqi soldiers, wherever they are, God willing, they're all still alive, but you know, you'd like to think you had a little bit of a hand in that, right. You yes. like had a little bit of a, a, a positive reason as to why, mm-hmm. um, they're still able to live a life uh, th- that they have. Um, so from that standpoint, um, let's talk the idea of foreign internal defense, because obviously it's morphed over the years. Uh, and we do now keep better after action reports and things of that nature on on what we've done. Um, I know it's effective. Uh, in your opinion, is, is it necessary to win a war? So you have to ask what what does winning mean? Uh, okay, that's how sure. you define winning. Um, yeah, because militarily winning uh, and strategically winning are two different things. Yeah. And, and, and defending let someone on the battlefield may be irrelevant. Right. Let me, let me rephrase the question. Um, how much of a force multiplier can foreign internal defense be when it comes to combat operations? I think it'd be a very good one under the right circumstances. Uh, I, I viewed what happened in Laos as being both a force multiplier that using the SGUs and a, well, honestly, I'll stop there, force multiplier, because using, uh, th- these are volunteers, but using them, and uh, it, it tied up a lot, large number of North Vietnamese who otherwise would have been killing Americans and South Vietnamese. So uh, I, I, I think it was, it, it was an investment that, that, that paid off at least from my point of view. Now, uh, a little anecdote here. The last uh, military attaché in Vinh was uh, General Treffrey, 
uh, he, he, he died in the last year. He's going to be buried soon. He, uh, in Northern Virginia, after Vietnamese and Lao and Cambodians and such refugees settled there, uh, that group wanted to, to build a Buddhist temple. And the locals objected. We don't want a Buddhist temple here. Good gosh, you know, what, they, they may sacrifice goats or something. Who knows? Well, um, Treffrey went and uh, spoke to a civic group out of the city council or what, spoke to a civic group and said, uh, these people you're, you're, you're trying to keep from having a temple, if it weren't for them, there would be a thousand more names on the Vietnam War wall than there are right now. So we owe them something. Wow. You so hear that? that? I, that's impactful when you hear that. I mean, that's... Yeah. And so that that's that's why I'd say yeah, force multiplier that that that's where they were, were, were they were effective yes. Um, let let me get since you mentioned that let me let me get to, um, 2015 and that the U.S. Special Forces Association honored Lao and and people in the Vietnam War. Uh, I know you were quoted in in a statement released by the Special Forces Association. Kind of give me the background. Because I think it's a good time to bring this in, the fact that, you know, if you saved a thousand American soldiers' lives, that obviously is noteworthy. Mm-hmm. So what was the point of the the honoring Lao and, and Laos and, and the Lao army? And uh, and was it part of the reason this was their direct effect? Yes. And also the fact they were allies. You don't betray an ally. People right. who are fighting with you. It's that simple. Uh, you just don't turn around and uh, walk away. And uh, we more or less did that with the Montagnards. Uh, we tried with some, we wanted to turn our back on the Lao and on the Hmong. And then uh, there was a political decision, but we tried to uh, uh, sell out the Syrian Kurds. I think we walked that back a little ways. But that, 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 that's a sad thing, it frosts me. When when you had to, to when the Special Forces Association came to you and told you that they were going to honor the Lao Army uh, and and other veterans of the war, what was your reaction? You, you, well, 40, you mean the the recent uh, uh, regimental ball that we had? We we had one uh, a week ago, and uh, uh, that was to honor the forty sixth Special Forces Company. Okay, and uh, but I don't recall. Anything honoring the Lao per se? Gotcha. No, I, I just meant in reference to the press release that that you know talked about the the mission that you guys had there. Uh, that didn't I, I, you know you know you know about that than I do. I must have missed something in the drop. <laughs> I have here a press release um, where you're quoted in it. Um, see, we, we do extensive research, right? Mm-hmm. Um, that um, there was a wreath laying ceremony honoring Lao and Hmong veterans. Uh, in the in, in their American military clandestine advisors in defense of the kingdom of Laos during the Vietnam War. Yeah, oh yeah, so, oh yeah. This, yes, what, what that is, uh, there is a, a public relations lobbying group here. Uh, I don't, don't remember the exact name, but every May fifteenth, more or less, they have a wreath laying ceremony at Arlington. They have a, a plaque there. Got it. Okay. And a bunch of speeches, and uh, I'm, I'm asked to speak, though I did not work for the Hmong. I mean. Uh, but I used to try to say something appropriate. And um, 
we had uh, Senator Sheldon Whitehouse on one occasion. His father was the uh, was a was a military no ambassador. His father was an ambassador in Laos. And we had a senator, uh, a congressman Costa from California. He has a lot of money in this district. So uh, then we've had other other speakers. Uh, so yes, I've I've uh, I've I've spoken there and uh, tried to say you know the right thing for the occasion. Right. And uh, that's yeah, I have been quoted to that. Yes, yes, you're right. Let's uh, uh, let's return to kind of. Uh, Green Berets and, and, and this mission, you know, in the future as it's morphed and changed and everything else. I mean, you know, we, we can look at countless battles uh, across, you know, American history, whether it's Panama, Grenada, you know, uh, even to a certain extent, Haiti, um, where special operators and the concept of working with indigenous forces mm-hmm. on the ground um, are critical to, to mission success. Uh, and even now, you know, for those who don't know, uh, this is what's kind of essentially going on in Ukraine uh, and has been for a while, even though the news reported, oh, we're just sending this stuff over now. I feel fairly certain that knowing what I know of the mission, those guys are there for a long time and have yes, been. Yes. Yeah. Um, you know, as soon as the remember this, this war with Ukraine and Russia has been going on for over a year. Mm-hmm. My guess is it's been about two years now since the 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 sniffing of Putin started coming out that we were smart enough to put people there to say, Hey, you might want to start to get ready. Cause this stuff is happening. Yes. Um, and sadly we lost a former green beret this week, uh, as we record this year, um, on May 19th, we lost a green beret this week. who was over there as a civilian mm-hmm. advising and training, um, the Ukrainian army. When you hear stuff like that, uh, how does it make you feel? Well, I, I think it's, 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 it's just, I would say par for the course. I, I don't mean to downplay someone's death, but uh, no, obviously. But that's kind of the mission, right? Yeah, yeah, that's the mission. That's what we do. And there, there are people who will take advantage of the situation. Maybe they, they want to make a contribution. They feel they have something to give, something to offer there. And others are, I think, just egotistical opportunists. But uh, yeah, I, I, that's uh, I, I know that feeling. I, I tell you another story. This, I don't think you acquired this piece of information. But when I finished the uh, command and general staff course in the reserve system, we had to write a paper at the end. We had to do something, write something. And I was following the war in, uh, in, in Rhodesia as best one can with the resources available here. I thought uh, it might be a good idea to uh, write a piece on the Rhodesian army. There was not much had been said about it outside of Soldier of Fortune magazine. So... Uh, I called uh, the uh, military review, said, what do you think of this idea? I said, yeah, well, we'd like to have that. We might be, be the first one to, to publish it. So I looked at my bank account, said, I can, I can probably handle this. So I got a ticket, flew from, I was living in Portland, Oregon area, flew, flew from Portland to New York, down to Johannesburg, and then into Salisbury. Now, they knew I was coming, so they, they picked me up at the airport and uh, took me to the uh, Ministry of Defense and, and it, it had a tour for me. So I spent a week there visiting different units and training centers in Rhodesia. Came back, wrote more article, and it was the first uh, article to be published in a military pu- uh, publication on the tactics and training of the Rhodesian security forces. And that was an answer to your question. Now, what was the question? 
<laughs> just about how, you know, the, the idea um, that, you know, foreign internal defense, the mission itself, and then you, you have former Green Berets who are still, you know, living the Green Beret motto, the press only, the press only free, free the oppressed uh, in, in, a, in a situation where they don't have to do it at all. Like they're yes, not yes. anymore, but they're, they're offering up their time, their, their lives, and they're certainly their, uh, you know, oh, yes. training. Oh, 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 Go ahead. There were American volunteers in the Rhodesian Army, a good number of volunteers down there. So uh, uh, now many deserted. Didn't speak well for them, but they, they signed a contract and then they deserted. What, uh, what do you miss the most about being a Green Beret? Well, let's put it this way. If I had the fitness that I had 30 years ago, I miss the physical activity. Well, right now, I'm happy to be able to climb the stairs. Uh, I ain't got the same joints I used to have. So uh, uh, I, I, I miss the, the activity. But the thing is, I, I, I'm, we're, people like you and me are able to continue this just to some degree. Because I belong to the local D.C. chapter of the Special Forces Association. And we had an absolutely fantastic uh, regimental ball last Saturday night, last Friday night. It was great. Uh, the uh, a guest was a Thai ambassador. And the most recent Medal of Honor recipient, uh, Paris Davis, was there. In fact, he's a member of the chapter anyway. And just a good group of people, I, some I've never even seen before. So it was, it was quite an experience. Another way I can kind of connect with the past uh, I belong to the Red Hat Society, which is the association of uh, former advisors to the South Vietnamese Airborne. And uh, we have uh, reunions every so often, except the COVID screws them up. And uh, we're having one in October, I think. And uh, you know, both uh, Americans and Vietnamese uh, participate. And that way we're able to kind of maintain some continuity. So uh, that way, I'm uh, I'm not I'm not completely cut off from 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 the past, and so doing that kind of keeps keeps the past alive. Uh, this 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 cow I mentioned, uh, Cow in Chiang Mai, who commanded GM 33. Uh, he lives in the Minneapolis area. He had a reunion of the SGUs, or at least the ones he knew in in that area. Uh, one of the guests was uh, General John Vesey former chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. He was, he, he, he'd been involved in Laos. He knew Cal. And uh, he, uh, he and some other, other dignitaries from, from Minnesota were there. So uh, my, the dead past doesn't stay, stay dead in my life that, that long. Right. Look, and, and I thought it was important given what's going on, you know, currently in the world that, that, to talk about the mission that you did and how it's still playing a major role uh, in, you know, the American military defense, yeah. you know, and, and what we do um, and understanding that. And, you know, for you at the very roots of the beginning of this concept, you know, to me is just uh, it, it's incredible, you know, because um, there wasn't a playbook written for it. Right. Like, obviously, you knew what you were doing, but we talked earlier in the show about goals and, and successes and how you measure it. You don't, we don't know the answer to that, you know, no. and, and even to this day to a certain extent, we don't know the answer to it. Although maybe we can quantify it a little bit more and a little bit more objectively. I yes. still think generally it's a subjective thing, whether you're succeeding at this mission or not. 
is another factor. Counterinsurgency doctrine was really not well developed back then. Yeah. We thought it was. Right. The, the manuals were uh, just didn't didn't have any depth. And uh, we did we, we did a lot of things right, but the, the 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 doctrine had not caught up with what we were doing. Uh, like when I had a six month tour at Fort Bragg, I taught a counterinsurgency course there to special forces warrant officers. I wasn't even in the teaching department, but they they asked me to help out because they were shorthanded, and I'd uh, uh, pointed out some flaws in the in, in in the in the program to them. So I rewrote the whole POI, and uh, I thought we had I thought I had I thought I had that body of knowledge down pat. And then uh, I hear David Kilcullen, he's a lieutenant colonel from Australia, who was a counterinsurgency advisor to the State Department and, and to the U.S. Army. And he pointed out that our counterinsurgency doctrine is based on the British and the French experience. They were fighting to stay there. We, we do counterinsurgency in order to get out. And uh, we weren't following the exact right model. That'd be a good beer drinking discussion, but... Uh, <laughs> No, I like it. Listen, I, I think it's great. I, I, again, I I thought this story when I read about it was worthwhile to understand. Um, it's it's been obviously a long time since Vietnam and you know everything that we did there. But I, I appreciate you know your base of knowledge for this whole thing, and it certainly provides a lot of background to why and how this is so important. I think, and again, as I said, the current reminder that this concept of foreign internal defense is happening all over the globe in countries you don't think about and don't even. Uh, know that it would be a reason to have it there repeatedly um, by special operators. And that's that whole, you know, uh, clandestine operation kind of deal. That, that's super important. So mm -hmm. uh, I, I thank you so much for sharing this with us. I really, really enjoyed it. I appreciate it. Very good. Well, I, I, I feel privileged to be a part of this, this, uh, this program that you, uh, that you have here. I think this is very important. You can, tune into someone you don't even know about and, 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 and uh, uh, experience that man's uh, accomplishments and his, what he's done in a, in a tight situation. Yeah, no. And it's, and part of this is all chronicling history, right? You know, this is another piece that the audience didn't know about, um, you know, uh, or, or thought was important, but clearly the impact and effect, when you say there would be another thousand names on the Vietnam wall, Mm -hmm. That's something that would stick with me forever. Yes. Not this job, you know, like in and of itself without this, you know, uh, um, and, and in a world where, you know, a, a post 11 world where we lost, you know, uh, I, I think the numbers are, are around 4,000 in the war on terror between Iraq and Afghanistan. Mm -hmm. uh, something like that. And then you put 58,000 in Vietnam. It's incomprehensible to loss, mm -hmm. you know? Uh, so, yeah, I, I think this was important to discuss, to say the least. So, um, again, continued success and, and luck and, um, you know, uh, stay in touch, obviously, with all your Special Forces brethren and the Special Forces Association. I think it's great that you guys still have this great tight-knit community. But certainly, again, uh, I appreciate your, your, your time today. Well, you asked some, some very good questions. Uh, this was uh, – time went fast here. I, I, I try. I appreciate it. But, uh, uh -huh. We certainly appreciate it. Uh, make sure you stay in touch if you need anything from us. But James Bruton, thanks for being part of the Hazard Ground. Very good. Hey, thanks a lot, Mark. You've been listening to the Hazard Ground Podcast, hosted by Mark Zeno. If you have an interesting story to tell and you'd like to be on the show, send us an email 
at producer at hazardground.com. And if you like the show, don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review on Apple Podcasts. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time. We'll see you next time.